Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Thursday, January 19th, 2023. It's been 3,249 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 330 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. In October, we shared the sad news that one of our primary contacts in the Donbass region, who helped verify multiple reports in April and May, disappeared on May 17th. The individual, who is not a soldier, combat volunteer, or government official, was in the Luhanska area near Svetlodarsk when Private Military Company, or PMC Wagner Group, supported by Russian army forces, started their offensive and heavily shelled the area on the day our contact disappeared. We always respected operational security, sometimes learning things from our contact that we couldn't release publicly, but which enabled us to provide unique and accurate insight. Our concern was well-placed given everything we knew, including the brutality of PMC Wagner and Ahmad, how no quarter is given to civilians, and their location on May 17th. After weeks turned to months, it became quiet resignation, and our chief content officer, David, spent more than one sleepless night wondering if some mistake had been made on our side that compromised operational security, contributing to the unthinkable. At 17.30 Pacific Standard Time on January 18th, we learned that this brave and talented person is alive and safe, after fleeing major fighting three times since May and finally crossing the line of conflict to freedom. We are ecstatic and overwhelmed with emotion, and we are equally humbled because there has not been a happy ending for thousands of other people. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we maintain that the power struggle between military leaders aligned with Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu versus those aligned to private military company or PMC Wagner Group head Yevgeny Prigozhin will continue. Second, We maintain that the ongoing information warfare between Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, and PMC Wagner is a byproduct of the strife within the Kremlin. Third, we maintain that the current winner of the ongoing infighting between factions loyal to Shoigu versus Prigozhin is Russian President Vladimir Putin, who has shifted negative attention back to the Ministry of Defense. Fourth, We assess there is a very high risk of punitive missile strikes on civilians and civilian infrastructure from January 19th to 21st due to the planned announcements of significant arms aid on January 20th, increased activity at Russian airbases, 
and the large deployment of the Black Sea Fleet. Fifth, we further assess that Russian forces will continue to target electrical, heating, and potable water infrastructure. Sixth, we maintain that there is a risk of a nuclear accident caused by the de-energization of Ukrainian nuclear power plants as a result of Russian electrical infrastructure destruction. Seventh, we maintain that Russian forces led by PMC Wagner Group have taken the initiative on the Solidar-Bakhmut axis, but remain largely defensive throughout the rest of Ukraine. Eighth, we maintain that the Russian military within Ukraine is combat ineffective and can only mount effective defensive operations, despite the slow success on the Solidar axis. Ninth, we maintain there will be a second wave of partial mobilization in the Russian Federation in January or February 2023. And finally, we maintain that the threat of Russian forces in Belarus crossing into Ukraine as part of a major offensive operation is only a remote possibility. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Donbass region in Luhansk. For the third day in a row, fighting on the Svatva, Kremina, and Lusychansk axes was positional in nature. On the Svatova axis, mercenaries with War Gonzo reported that Russian forces attacked Novoselivske and could not push Ukrainian forces out of the village on the P-7 highway. If your jaw is in your lap that a Russian state media source was that transparent about a failed Russian attack and admitting that Novoselivske is under Ukrainian control, buckle up, because there is a lot of brutal truth from the more reliable group of Russian sources. The Russian MOD reported that Ukrainian troops were shelled and mercenaries with Rybar reported that Ukrainian forces were attacking, quote, in the area of Novoselivske and were trying to push into the, quote, gray zone. We adjusted our map slightly to show all of Novoselivske under Ukrainian control. A Ukrainian source reported positional fighting in Ploshanka. Serhi Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, confirmed that Russian forces launched a counterattack out of Kremina on January 17th, while a Ukrainian source reported that positional fighting continued. The Russian MOD reported that Ukrainian troops in Dibrova were hit by artillery fire and airstrikes, with Worgonzo also reporting that Ukrainian troops in Dibrova were under artillery fire. The line of conflict is moving back and forth through the Serebriansky woods, and in our assessment, Ukrainian forces were able to push back the January 17th Russian counteroffensive. On the Lysychansk axis, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, and mercenaries with Rybar reported continued fighting, quote, in the area of Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk. Wargonzo reported, quote, the armed forces of the Russian Federation carried out offensive operations in the area of Bilohorivka, Armed Forces of Ukraine, or APU, repelled the attack. End quote. Quick note from the team. We wish that validating combat reports was always this easy. Yesterday, we discussed a video of Russian military convoys moving through Novo-Ochtyrka, Severodonetsk, and Voyovodivka along the P-66 highway ground line of communication, called a G-lock, that's a supply line, to support the Russian defense in Kremina. There is a report of a rocket attack by HIMARS using a fragmentation round on Novo Okhtirka. We can't verify the report because the only pictures are of a hand showing the deformed tungsten BBs, claiming it was in the town. In northeast Donetsk on the Siversk axis, 
Ukrainian sources reported continued fighting for control of Bilohorivka, the one in Donetsk, and Russian forces were pulling in reserve troops due to losses. Ukrainian and Russian sources reported that Russian-aligned forces continued attempts to advance north from Yakovlivka toward Vesele without success. On the Solidar axis, Ukrainian forces appear to be stabilizing the line of conflict as PMC Wagner shifts its attention to the south of Bakhmut. Russian forces maintained pressure in the direction of Rozdolivka from Yakovlivka, but did not make any gains. Russian and Ukrainian sources reported that Russian forces were trying to push towards Krasnopolivka out of Sil and toward Blachodatne, also without success. On the western edge of Solidar, a graphic video that some may find disturbing showed PMC Wagner mercenaries in a trench being wiped out by artillery and mortar fire. Pavlo Kirilenko, Donetsk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported the heaviest shelling in the Donetsk region was around Solidar. On the subject of Sil, on January 16th, PMC Wagner claimed they captured the satellite village near Solidar. Today, the Russian MOD claimed that Russian forces captured Sil without mentioning PMC Wagner. The morning report stated, quote, In the Donetsk direction, volunteers of assault detachments, with fire support from operational tactical and army aviation, missile troops, and artillery of the Southern Military District, captured the settlement of Sil. End quote. The reference to volunteers of assault detachments hints that it was PMC Wagner while minimizing the role. On the same day the Russian MOD claimed to have captured Sil, the GSAFU reported continued fighting. Both Russian and Ukrainian sources reported continued fighting around Krasnohora. On the Bakhmut axis, Ukrainian forces made marginal gains east of the critical transit hub of Paraskovivka and were able to push to the western edge of Pithorodne. In northeast Bakhmut, Russian forces continued to move through the dachas in the forest plantation and reached Sokhozna Street, where they were greeted by Ukrainian artillery. Russian state media service Anna News reported on PMC Wagner in what appears to be areas east of the M3 or E40 highway near Bakhmut. Quick assessment here. It took almost a year, but Russian state media appears to be respecting operational security, or OPSEC, more, with only one photo released that could be geolocated. So, good job, I guess? While fighting and artillery exchanges were intense, Ukrainian forces were able to hold defensive lines along the rest of the city's edges. South of Bakhmut, fighting continued around Klishayivka, with more analysts aligning with our assessment that claims of Russian gains over the weekend were exaggerated. We did move the line of conflict west, based on a graphic video showing PMC Wagner mercenaries being hit by Ukrainian artillery along the railroad tracks north of the settlement. Heavy fighting continues, with Wargonzo reporting, quote, the Ukrainian garrison is holding the line, end quote. Wargonzo also reported that Russian troops tried to advance out of Mayorsk in the direction of Pivnichne. Wargonzo also reported that Russian troops tried to advance out of Mayorsk in the direction of Pivnichne and were unsuccessful. In southwest Donetsk, it's mostly another cut and paste report. On the Avdiivka axis, a Russian source reported that the First Army Corps of the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, attempted to cross the H-20 highway near Kamyanka and was unsuccessful. PMC Wagner Telegram Channel Grey Zone 
claimed that since February 24, 2022, the DNR has attempted more than 100 frontal assaults on Avdiivka using the same tactics each time and has not gained a meter. The most recent direct attack was ordered without armor, and the ground forces received no artillery support. It went so badly that commanders of the 1st Army Corps had enough and demoted the unit commander to private and dismissed him from the military. Quick question, why did they wait for him to get to 100? Were they trying to break a record? South of Avdiivka, there was no change in the situation. Elements of the 1st Army Corps engaged in positional fighting to try to advance into the northern half of Vodyana, and the separatists failed to advance in Pervomaiske. Russian forces also attempted to move closer to the Ukrainian firebase at Nevelske, with Wurgonzo claiming the attack failed. On the Marinka axis, there was intense fighting east of Krasnohorivka, with Russian forces trying to capture Heolohichna Street without success, according to, you guessed it, Wurgonzo. The claim made by self-declared leader of the DNR, Denis Pushilin, that Ukrainian forces had been pushed out of the center of Marinka was dismissed by Ukrainian and Russian sources, and positional fighting in the center of the city continued. DNR separatists also continued their attempts to advance on Pobida. On the Vuladar axis, the Russian MOD claimed that Ukrainian forces attempted to advance on Solodke and Stepne, engaging with Russian naval infantry, and were unsuccessful. Pushilin was not having a great day after announcing that he would force those responsible for managing and repairing heating systems to live in impacted areas. Local social media channels blew up with comments from residents of Mariupol asking for everyone to be sent to their city. As one of our Russian translators said, quote, Bro was roasted today, end quote. Social media wasn't the only place mocking his announcement with Russian state media in the DNR jumping on the statement. Cable channel Z-Union of the DNR shared Pushlin saying, quote, According to the reports, everything is fine, but people are just freezing. End quote. They went on to editorialize, saying, quote, What instructions did the leader of the DNR give as a result? Problems in the field of housing and communal services have become the most discussed in recent days. Someone has cold batteries, Somewhere there are gusts, or the water supply schedule can be said to be unpredictable. Complaints continue to come in, and the leader of the Republic spoke about this with the heads of ministries and departments. Why does it happen that one thing is written in the reports, but in reality, there is a completely different picture? End quote. It was reported the mayor of Donetsk and the DNR head of the Ministry of Construction were forced to spend the night in an unheated home, and are now convinced that the reports they have been receiving, quote, differ from the real situation, end quote. Pushilin is also dealing with fresh complaints about the conditions of bomb shelters in Donetsk. Doing stuff is hard. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at News. Moving on to Kherson and Zaporizhia. There was mutual shelling on the west and east banks of the Dnipro, with free Ukraine shelled 83 times, including 26 strikes on the city of Kherson, wounding four people. 
Russian artillery concentrated on civilian areas using thermite and high-explosive warheads. At the mouth of the Dnipro on the banks of the Dniprovska Gulf, Stanislav was also hit by artillery strikes. Social media and Russian sources reported that Russian positions were shelled in Novokokhovka, Kokhovka, and Olishki. The situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is unchanged. Energoatom reported that Ukrainian engineers would need at least two months to restore ZNPP to full power after the Russian occupation ends, so explosive ordnance disposal teams can clear mines, explosives, and check for sabotage, while engineers inspect and repair systems, seals, gaskets, controls, and valves that have not been used for months because reactors have been in cold shutdown. Russian forces fired an S-300 anti-aircraft missile that potentially targeted the Zaporizhia International Airport, but overshot and landed in a field near Matvevka. Windows were broken from the concussion, but there were no injuries reported. Ivan Fedorov, the exiled mayor of Melitopol, shared a video of an ammunition depot exploding with multiple secondary blasts, reportedly in Mikhailivka. Otherwise, Russia and Ukraine exchanged sporadic artillery fire from the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border to Huliapola to Orekhiv, with Russian forces firing 153 shells, mortars, and rockets on 17 settlements. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region, the composition of the Black Sea fleet once again did not change, with 16 ships on patrol, including six surface vessels and one kilo-class submarine capable of launching caliber cruise missiles. In western and central Ukraine, in Dnipropetrovsk, Russian forces shelled Chervonohryorivka and Markhanets, hitting the settlements on the north bank of the Dnipro with 30 artillery shells. Civilian housing was targeted, with no injuries reported. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Dmitry Medvedev, the deputy chairman of the Security Council of the Russian Federation, once again played the nuclear card on the eve of Ukraine likely receiving commitments for the largest shipment of heavy weapons since February 24th. Referring to the upcoming NATO meeting at Rammstein and the ongoing Davos Forum, Medvedev said, quote, It does not occur to any of the miserable people to draw the following elementary conclusion from this. The loss of a nuclear state in a conventional war can provoke the start of a nuclear war, end quote. He added, quote, Nuclear powers have not lost major conflicts on which their fate depends, end quote. Oh, definitely, which is why the Soviet Union obviously won the war in Afghanistan. No, wait, hold up. Didn't they lose the war in Afghanistan? No, no, that can't be right. They were a nuclear power, so surely, <laughs> let me check my notes here, surely they used nuclear... Oh, they did not use nuclear weapons despite their defeat. And the Soviet Union started breaking into pieces less than 18 months later. Huh. This makes me think that maybe nuclear powers do lose major conflicts on which their fate depends. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov also warned of, quote, escalation, saying that additional arms that could strike Russia would bring things to the next level. Okay, straight up opinion. Yep, he said that back in June when Ukraine first received HIMARS, and Ukraine has already attacked Russian air bases as close as 100 kilometers from Moscow. I mean, Ukraine launched a drone attack on the Black Sea fleet in Sevastopol. I'm over it. And to be frank, you should be too. 
Ukrainian officials provided additional details about the helicopter crash in Brovry. They confirmed our earlier report that Internal Affairs Minister of Ukraine, Denis Morostirsky, his deputy, Yevhen Yenin, and State Secretary Yuri Lubkovich were killed, adding the names of the flight crew and increasing the number on board the helicopter to 10. Alexander Vasilenko, command pilot and instructor, Kostyantin Kovalenko, co-pilot, and Ivan Kasyanov, flight engineer, enlisted, along with Tetyana Shutyak, an aide to Monastirsky, Mikhailo Pavlushko, chief of security of the Minister of Internal Affairs, Mikola Anatsky, photographer, and Andriy Marinchenko, a senior detective from the National Police Department for Internal Affairs, also died in the crash. Including those on the ground, there are 14 confirmed dead, including a five- or six-year-old girl. The Ukrainian Security Service, or SBU, has opened an investigation into the crash, focusing on a potential violation of flight safety rules, a technical malfunction, or sabotage. The Airbus helicopter H-225, previously known as a Eurocopter EC-225LP Super Puma, purchased from France in 2018, is known to have a significant design flaw with its gearbox that required modification and an early warning system to be added. Videos before the crash showed the helicopter flying low over the Kiev suburb in foggy and low-light conditions. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz didn't surprise anyone on our team, doubling down on Berlin's stance that the only way Leopard 2 main battle tanks, or MBTs, will be released to Ukraine is if the United States sends M1A1 Abrams. The stalemate not only includes Leopard 2 from Germany, but from up to five nations that want to transfer some of their fleets to Ukraine, which requires Berlin's approval. In the first signal from the new United States Congress on the Republican stance on continued military aid to Ukraine, Representative Mike McCall, who chairs the Foreign Affairs Committee, and Representative Mike Rogers, who chairs the Armed Services Committee, blasted Berlin and Washington for continued indecision on arming Ukraine, saying, quote, The current hand-wringing and hesitation by the Biden administration and some of our European allies in providing critical weapon systems to Ukraine stink of the weak politics of 2021, such as not sanctioning Nord Stream 2 or providing U.S. origin stingers before the full-scale invasion. While those policies failed to deter this conflict, the current indecision and self-deterrence will prolong it, costing Ukrainian lives. Now is the time for the Biden and Schultz governments to follow the lead of our UK and Eastern European allies. Leopard 2 tanks, Atakums, and other long-range precision munitions should be approved without delay. End quote. The European Parliament entered the fray, approving the 2022 Common Security and Defense Policy, or CSDP, on Wednesday, by 459 votes in favor, 93 against, and 85 abstentions. Lawmakers called for the immediate deployment of modern weapons and a next-generation air defense system and urged German Chancellor Scholz to, quote, deliver Leopard 2 main battle tanks to Ukraine without further delay, end quote. Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki implied that Poland might transfer Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine without authorization from Berlin. Additionally, there were unconfirmed reports that France may commit to providing Ukraine with Leclerc MBTs, adding pressure on Germany to stop blocking the transfer of the Leopard 2 tanks. Canada announced they would provide Ukraine with 200 Senator Armored Personnel Carriers, or APCs, which have a crew of two and can support six dismounts.
Although considered an APC, the primary customer is law enforcement and border patrol. Estonian Prime Minister Kaya Kallas announced that her nation was sending their largest military aid package to Ukraine yet, including 155mm howitzers, grenade launchers, and ammunition. Latvia also announced a new military aid package, which includes Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, unspecified helicopters, machine guns, ammunition, and military-grade drones. The United States is rumored to announce another aid package on Friday that would exceed the $3 billion in military aid committed last week. The new package could include up to 100 striker armored fighting vehicles. So, an infantry fighting vehicle is designed to move dismounts at the same speed as tanks, provide protection, support, and cover fire. An armored fighting vehicle is more protected and can directly engage enemy targets while providing fire support to the dismounts. Like the Bradley fighting vehicle, when the striker was first deployed in 2002, several major design flaws were revealed, which were addressed using the lessons learned in Iraq and Afghanistan. Speaking at the World Economic Forum in Davos, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres said he does not see a path to peace between Russia and Ukraine in the near future, saying, quote, There will be an end. There is an end of everything. But I do not see an end to the war in the immediate future. I do not see a chance at the present moment to have a serious peace negotiation between the two parties, end quote. President Putin was supposed to make a major speech about Russia's war in Ukraine at 1600 Moscow time yesterday. The Russian leader visited a weapons factory, rewrote some World War II history in honoring the 80th anniversary of the liberation of Leningrad, and then flew back to his Moscow bunker. Speaking of bunkers, let's talk about Russian mobilization. While NATO waffles over tanks and longer-range missiles to arm Ukraine, Russians are still wringing their hands over shaving. State Duma Deputy Viktor Sobolev defended the mandate for shaving, haircuts, and being presentable, as well as the ban on electronics. Russian state media reported Sobolev said, quote, Everything in the army should be as it should be. This is an elementary requirement of military discipline. A soldier must be a soldier. Of course, the main task of a military man is to fight competently and skillfully, but I do not think that with any of the most intense combat activities, there are not 15 to 20 minutes to clean up your appearance. When peaceful people look at a soldier, he should be a model. If he walks unshaven, this does not paint him either as a person or as a soldier. End quote. Adding that the requirements for a soldier, including appearance, are spelled out in the Charter of Military Service. All is going to plan. In geopolitical news, someone gave a microphone to Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, which can mean one of two things. He threatened to use nuclear weapons or said something anti-Semitic. Or, or both. It could have been both. Lavrov chose to minimize the Holocaust, accusing the United States and Europe on Wednesday of seeking a, quote, final solution to, quote, the Russia question, comparing Adolf Hitler's plan to wipe out the Jews in World War II to Ukraine defending itself from Russia's unprovoked invasion. Lavrov said, quote, Just as Napoleon mobilized practically all of Europe against the Russian Empire, just as Hitler mobilized and captured the majority of European countries and sent them against the Soviet Union, 
Now the United States has organized a coalition. End quote. Israel's foreign ministry released a tepid response, saying Lavrov was distorting, quote, the historical truth, and desecrating, quote, the memory of those who perished. Germany's ambassador to Russia called the statement, quote, appalling, with the United States declaring the comparison, quote, absurd. White House National Security spokesperson John Kirby said, quote, how dare he compare anything to the Holocaust, anything, let alone a war they started, end quote. The European Jewish Congress demanded a retraction and apology in a statement that declared, quote, This is Holocaust distortion at its most basic level, and we call on Mr. Lavrov to unequivocally apologize and withdraw these comments, end quote. Sidebar, this is where we remind our listeners that the Soviet Union invaded Poland on September 17, 1939, in coordination with Nazi Germany. Soviet soldiers executed 25,000 Polish officers and deported 1.3 million Poles, many of them Jews, to Siberia to provide forced labor. Stalin supplied the Nazi war machine with coal, oil, and fuel as Germany rolled across Europe, bombed British cities to rubble, killing 40,000, and targeted civilian shipping across the Atlantic. Stalin was in the middle of another pogrom, now called the Doctor's Plot, when he died of a stroke in March 1953. Some more straight-up opinion. Writing that Moscow needs to take a long, hard look in the mirror and ponder its past would imply that Kremlin leaders have any self-awareness. Lavrov has repeatedly insulted the global Jewish community with his open anti-Semitism while claiming Russia is denazifying Ukraine. After 11 months of the Kremlin doing damage control and walking back comments, it's time to face the facts. Sergei Lavrov is anti-Semitic. You can add the Israeli government among the nations wringing their hands over providing aid to Ukraine. Israel would honor the six million dead screaming from their graves if they were less concerned about angering Moscow by doing the right thing, like helping Ukraine detect and destroy Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 drones. Okay, I'm putting my opinion away now. In economic news... Russian economist Abel Aganbigyan, head of the Economic Theory and Politics Department at RANEPA and scientific supervisor of the DBA program at the Higher School of Finance and Management, RANEPA, in Moscow, released a paper outlining how the special military operation is costing Russia $1 billion a day. Not just in the hard costs of military expenditure, but the impact of the current regime moving to a, quote, low-efficiency and socially backward state-oligarchic capitalism, end quote, which Aganbigyan predicts will stagnate the economy for years to come. In his paper, he wrote that the impact caused by regime decisions would be worse than the economic slowdown caused by COVID and the ongoing special military operation combined, writing, quote, After all, the crisis has a built-in rebound from the bottom, a post-crisis rise. Stagnation, on the other hand, does not contain a transition mechanism to growth, but pulls the economy down into recession, end quote. The Russian economy has been in recession since the second quarter of 2022, retreating about 4.3% in each of the last two quarters. The ruble was unchanged, with an exchange rate of 69 for one U.S. dollar. Western oil prices declined due to new recession fears, WTI crude dropped to $79 a barrel, and Brent fell to $84.
Russian Ural's crude rebounded to an official price of $55 a barrel. United States wholesale Arbov gasoline on the spot market fell to $2.49 a gallon, or $0.66 cents a liter. Dutch TTF natural gas futures rose to €61 Euros per megawatt hour for February and March 2023 delivery. Chicago SRW wheat futures fell to $7.40 a bushel for March 2023 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.